Okay, welcome to another episode of New Books and Terrorism and Organised Crime. Today we have the opportunity to talk to Nick Hobbs about his new book, Lush Life, which is a history of organised crime in the United Kingdom, uh, as a basic summary, I suppose. Um, Nick, how are you? So how are you? You're actually in Sydney at the moment. Yeah, that's right. I, I'm, uh, I've got a, a, a connection with the uh, University of Western Sydney, and I come over every year. Uh in your winter, just at the end of your winter for uh, for six weeks, and um, I'm enjoying the I'm enjoying this ridiculous weather. It's wonderful. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Winter is your summer. Absolutely, it is. Yeah. Yeah. So let's start off with just uh, talking about the history of you know, how you ended up in academia and you wrote this book. Well, I, I came into academia late, and uh, I left school um, as early as I could, and went to work, and I did all kinds of jobs. Um, even though there was plenty of work then, around then, and um, I, I, I was a dustman or a garbo, as you would call it, and uh, a road sweeper, um, a warehouseman. I worked in, as a as a messenger boy in in, um, in offices, and uh, the messenger boy. But I recently re rewatched the Quadrophenia, and if anyone's seen quad, yeah, if anyone's seen Quadrophenia, the, the 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 kind of work conditions and the way that. That young young kids were then working in, in, in lowly office work. That was uh, that was me. That was like a documentary that bit of the film. So uh, yeah, I, I did all I did all of that for quite a few years, and then I, I went to night school and um, got my sort of some basic education. I ended up as a school teacher. I worked as a school teacher in where I come from in the East End of London for uh, four or five years, and um, then I went to the London School of Economics and I did a masters. And uh, the dissertation for the masters was. Uh, was uh, it did well, and I got a distinction, and then I went on and did a PhD, and and um, it took off from there really. I, I went and worked at the uh, University of Oxford uh, as a researcher, and I went to the University of Durham in the north of England, and I was there for fifteen years. Came back down south, uh, worked at the LSE from two thousand and five uh, to two thousand and eleven, and I'm now at the, uh, the University of uh, University of Essex, and I think that all of my work really has has been informed by. Uh, my experiences growing up in East London, um, uh, living in East London and working in East London as well. And when it came to Lush Life, um, I'd worked on, on studies of organised crime and professional crime for a few years, uh, but I really wanted to, um, I really wanted to bring together a lot of themes that I've been working on uh, since the, since the start of my career in the eighties. Um, I wanted to stress the the kind of, if you like, the old-fashioned sociology of deviance. I've got no time for criminology. I think mean, the old-fashioned sociology of deviance, whereby, you know, it's normal. It's, this is normal activity. It's part of people's lives. It's cultural and economic. There's all kinds of things going on there. And I wanted to get back to that and escape from the, from the, the confines of, the, of criminology. I'm an ethnographer by trade, and so I wanted to apply my ethnography. But I was also interested in the way that over the last 15 or 20 years in, uh, in the UK, we've, we've invented this, this thing, organised crime. We didn't have the term. Um, when I was growing up, we didn't have the term when I started off as a as an academic, um, and it was it was a, a creation really of political forces, uh, a lot of Americanization, um, impact from uh, from from Europe as well, um, and we created this notion of organised crime as being a great threat to the state and a great threat to to uh, to our way of life, and yet it wasn't there before. So I wanted to look at the way we we, we constructed an old fashioned social constructionism way. We constructed um, organised crime and we constructed um, agencies to deal with it. And of course, in any nation, if you've got a, a special agency designed to deal with a problem, the problem will get bigger 
uh, in accord with the uh, with the budgets. And um, I was interested in that. So in the first few chapters of of, um, of Lush Life, I try to look at the way that um, the organised crime has been created uh, by the state. Uh, and then I want to look, I wanted to look then at, at, at what what's gone on previous to the, this this construction of organised crime. So I then get into to look, looking at uh, some of the early early twentieth century um, moral panics about uh, alien conspiracies, about uh, Jewish white slavers, about uh, Chinese uh, opium smokers, about Maltese pimps. And all of these created, all of these moral panics were, were, were based, as all real moral panics are, on, on, on some kind of reality. But they became exaggerated and used by the state um, to uh, enforce certain norms at, at key times. So after the, the First World War, there's a great uh, fear about women being in the workplace and uh, uh, replacing uh, the, the soldiers that were fighting in the trenches. So what are you going to do in the 1920s? Well, you find a way of getting women back into the domestic realm. One way of doing that was to uh, present women as being under threat from uh, alien uh, corruption. And in this case, it was, it was the Chinese opium smokers, who, opium sellers who were, who were coming your way uh, about to, to, uh, to uh, corrupt uh, your, your wife, your girlfriend. So you better look after them, get them back in the home. Don't let them out in the workplace because they're vulnerable people. We then, we then went through a, a, a period that, uh, after the Second World War. Uh, we a similar situation, really. There was, uh, after the Second World War, you know, women have been in the workplace as never before. Uh, there was there was a kind of uh, uh, feeling in the 1950s that we had to get back to some kind of patriarchal normality. And one way of doing it really was to present um, uh, women as being vulnerable yet again to uh, foreign influences. And this time we chose the, the Maltese pimp, or sometimes the Cypriot pimp, who was uh, who, who was uh, imposing himself upon our, our, our pristine white womanhood. And uh, so, you know, it, 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 these, these kind of fears come around, but they were never described as organized crime. The term organized crime was always regarded as something that came from the United States or Italy. Um, so the, the term organized crime in the 1990s, in the early 1990s, brought together all of these fears and brought together this historical tendency to, to other uh, and to, uh, and to uh, present uh, foreigners as being a threat. And of course, it it coincided with uh, with um, a movement uh, movements of population across Europe. Uh, we we now have uh, some very interesting patterns of immigration in the UK, and constantly throughout this this um, construction of the organised crime problem, we've seen foreigners as presented as being the main problem. We've seen the same here. I've got a PhD student who's working on a similar topic, and organised crime doesn't become a problem until it's imported. Yes. So even though we have a well-known history of people who are running prostitution, all sorts of scams and rackets, it yes. only becomes a problem with um, migration. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you, see in the, uh, you see it in the United States with the creation of the, the, the kind of great method, moral panic. There was all kinds of serious uh, crime in, in the United States in, in the 19th century as, uh, as uh, capitalist um, entrepreneurs just ran right across the frontier, really making fortunes and, and committing all kinds of atrocities. That was never regarded as, uh, as criminalistic. Uh, but when um, poor Italians from, from the southern part of that country arrived in, in America with 
certain uh, certainly definitely tendency, certain tendencies that they brought with them that they imported that was regarded as the major problem. You see it in most countries now, but sure in, in Australia I've seen it. I, I, I can see um, uh, people from the Middle East constantly presented as being a, an organised crime problem, whereas uh, you know. I believe Ned Kelly was uh, was Irish. So uh, Irish. what about that? What, what the, about Irish. that? the Irish were the first big problem. Yes. Yeah. Well, if you're poor, yeah. if you're poor, if you're poor and, and you arrive in a new country, you you will do your best. You will you will develop what uh, Paul Gilroy and, and Stuart Hall call colony cultures. And these colony cultures are kind of important because they um they they create little leisure zones around these 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 new imports, these new people who've arrived, particularly when it's 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 young men arriving. Without their families, without women, um, they're working strange hours, or they're not working at all, and um, they want to drink. Uh, they might, they might want sex. They might want to use certain drugs, and they, they, they come together in these these very small groups, and very quickly those colony cultures are regarded by the uh, by the home community as being a, a major problem. So you see this this tendency pretty much across the globe. Yep. So do you think it's actually an attachment of? Um an excuse for the racism of being able to add the vice on top as an excuse to justify the attitudes that were already there. Yeah, it, it, it's that and a bit more because the, the I think that was the case. But say in the early nineteenth century, when we when we had um, uh, a, a large uh, input of of, um, of Jews coming from the Pale of Settlement in Eastern Europe came to the UK, when they arrived, they were accused of all kinds of things, usually to do with prostitution, white slavery, those kinds of activities. But there was already a great deal of, uh, of uh, anti-Semitism in the, in the UK. Uh, we'd, experienced that for, we'd experienced that for centuries. So the new inputs that are coming in are, are, are presenting as being a new threat, but actually they link in with the kind of uh, xenophobia which is, already, which is already in existence, and uh, new structures have to be put into place. I mean, we created our immigration laws in the UK on the back of this great fear of, of Jewish immigration. Uh, and the, the interesting thing about the Jewish immigration as well to, to the UK was that um, the, uh, the developing labour um, movement, the Labour Party, the Fabian Society, all of the, these kind of what we would now regard as pristine left-wing organisations were incredi- incredibly anti-Semitic as well. So whatever laws were put into place were going to be populist laws. And I think that's a, a major point, that you can introduce populist laws on the back of existing xenophobia. And, uh, and become, you know, you can win votes. You can win votes. We're seeing it in the UK. I've just endured uh, another one of your uh, of your elections over here. Where <laughs> apparently, apparently the votes are keep the votes are keeping coming, and uh, I, I find it uh, I find it amazing. But it's a smart and easy uh, way of winning votes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And and uh, you, you're absolutely right. I mean, if you hang around in Sydney, you'll soon see stereotype connections of types of crime to individual communities like Harold with the Vietnamese community, for example. Yes, yes, ab- ab- absolutely. And that's not to say that they're not involved in some way. It's about, it's about keeping that, that, that so-called threat in proportion, you know. Is it a bigger threat than white-collar crime? Is it a bigger threat to Australia than the, than the, mining, than the, the mining industry long-term? You know, so... I think we've got to be careful not to say, ah, you know, these people are great, they don't do any crime mercy. But no, they're not, they're human beings. And back to the old sociology of deviance, deviance is normal. So why wouldn't they do it? Why wouldn't they do it? But it's a question of keeping the threat 
in, in proportion. Certainly in the UK, I mean, one of the things that I wanted to go with the book is that I wanted to look at, at that, that the period really in the 1960s and not into the, into the 1970s when we had, uh, we did have some serious crime groups, particularly in and around London. I mean, some of them became famous, like the Cray Twins, you know, films got made about them, uh, books got, were, were published. And they were quite serious, they were quite serious players, but they were never called organised crime. They were never called organised crime. Only in retrospect were they called organised crime. And um, I, I got to know um, an, another famous uh, gangster icon of the, of the 1960s, Charlie Richardson. Yep. And I got to know Charlie quite well. And Charlie used to stress the fact, he said, well, what did I do? He said, uh, you know, I punched a few people, I knocked a few people around and made a few bob being a dodgy businessman. And he ended up getting 25 years inside, you know, and, and he's right. He was right. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't uh, always a particularly nice man. He was a violent man. He did all kinds of things. No one was murdered. No one was maimed. And he got 25 years. Because every now and then you would have a, you could get a reaction, particularly against working class or, 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 or uh, so-called alien crime. And you get these, you get reactions. You get fantastic prison sentences are dished out. Whereas the, the usual suspects are, are, are left pretty much alone. Yeah. Do you find the, the necessity of having violence in the conversation as part of the same um, mythology of organised crime? Because I've read a lot of biographies of people who've been involved in international drugs and all sorts of prostitution, and violence just doesn't exist in their lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's there in the it's there it's there as a backstop. It's a bit like um, it's it's a bit like the, the the judicial system. You know, most of us never go to court, most of us never use the judicial system, but we know it's there. And, and violence and intimidation kind of hangs around, it hangs around. And uh, certainly, you know, in, in, in my years now of working with, uh, with, with, with uh, serious full-time uh, criminals, professional criminals, uh, violence is, 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 seldom, is, is seldom used, but they've usually got violent reputations that go back to their youth. You know, you establish yourself through violence, and then if you're smart, you move away from the violence and you move into more entrepreneurial uh, activities. But the violence is still there. The possibility is still there. The knowledge is still there. And, and, and that becomes important. So it's, it's, a kind of, um, it's, it, it, it's a kind of watermark, if you like, yeah. violence, which is on, which is on all, of their, all of their CVs. Yep, yep. I mean, I know in Sydney, for example, um, it was often said by the people who were the large players there that violence is really bad for business. Because yeah. if the violence was there in the King's Cross, people wouldn't come to the King's Cross. They wouldn't avail themselves of all the vice they were trying to be sold. Yeah. So it just wasn't good play. Yeah, yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's not good business. It, it attracts uh, it attracts uh, attention. If you're going to do violence, you better make it extreme violence, and the body goes missing. And then there's then there's, then there's no case to investigate, and, and there's no there's no police attention. But obviously, not everybody is willing to is willing to, to, to take it that far. Certainly, the drugs trade made a, it was a I think everywhere it was a a mass it marked a massive change a massive change in in, in the way that these basically local neighbourhood based crime groups uh, had operated for years. I mean, if you look at the Crays and the Richardsons and, and other groups over the years. They, they exploited opportunities in their local area. Uh, they exploited the local neighbourhood. And if they were good, if they were really good at what they did, they might be able to stretch their activities into adjoining neighbourhoods as well. And that, that, might, that might work. Um, if, to be involved in the drugs trade at any level, you need to move out of the neighbourhood. And in order to move out of the neighbourhood, you need to have some um, vehicle, some activity to, 
to, to break into that neighbourhood. And, and that's where violence does come into play. That's where the, the violence does come into play. So at the street level of the drugs trade, that's where we, we, we found most of the uh, most of the, the, the violence, you know. Moving, moving up the, the ladder to the drugs trade, and people become more normalised, if you like. They become more business-like, and, and violence becomes rarer, but more deadly further up. The first thing is that, that a few people said to me, if things go wrong uh, in the drugs trade, and there's, there's you know, maybe millions of pounds involved, the first, first person to get whacked is, is the accountant. <laughs> Which seems to me a reasonable law of life. You know, One that the rest of us can't put into practice in normal life. <laughs> they're doing us a favour, I think. Yeah, they're doing us a favour. But you, you know, it, 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 certainly at the at the at the higher levels, it, the, the drugs was uh, was pretty unusual. Uh, sorry, violence was pretty unusual, in, 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 and uh, you're right in that respect. But it was usually with, with a, certainly with a lot of these people, there was some kind of violence on their CV. Although when when we I worked with uh, the late Jeff Pearson on a on a on a project a few years ago, which and I've used some of that material in Lush Life, and we found there that that, um, that that a lot of people being involved in in the drugs trade were were normal folk. It was you and me, our brothers, our sisters, our uncles, our aunts. It was and our next door neighbours. These were normal people. They didn't have that, that kind of uh, criminal CV. They didn't have a background. They didn't have form, if you like, in in, yep. in the criminal world. And um, that's certainly something I found. Uh, well, I worked on a project um, uh, with, with uh, for the Home Office, and uh, I've included some of those materials in, a, in an appendix in, in Lush Life. And um, it's remarkable, you know, how normal most of these people were. And they were doing big time. You know, we interviewed um, 222 uh, drug traffickers for that particular uh, project, who were serving between seven and 22 years. And um, they were um, they came through small businesses. They come through large businesses. They 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 were very ordinary people, mm. and yet they ended up getting involved in some really very serious uh, levels of importation. And I think that's the thing about the UK in particular. You know, we are a relatively small island, and the majority of, of drugs which are consumed in the UK have to come from overseas. They have to come from overseas. Although we've got a really burgeoning market now in in the in homegrown cannabis, mm. which, you know, which most nations have, have, have got now, um, the rest of our drugs come from overseas. So, so it's very, very easy for us to kind of point the finger and say, it's coming from overseas, you know, the aliens are coming, there's a wave coming. It's our versions of the boats keep coming, you know. Yeah. And that's, that's the way we've tended to talk, that's the way we tend to talk about drugs. But certainly over the years, I, I, I found quite clearly that, that the main players in the UK, although they will have um, cosmopolitan connections, they will have connections overseas. The main players are, are without a doubt, they're, they're homegrown indigenous uh, usual suspects, if you like, who may now be clean skins, who may be business people in their own right. I, I, was, quite, I was quite struck actually by the, the number of people who were in the, in the restaurant trade, uh, uh, who ran garages, who ran transport businesses, and uh, they'd be approached by people and they'd just say, well, you know, I, I want to run some money through your business. I want to. I want to launder something. I want to wash money through your business, and I'll put ten grand through, and it's a grand, fifteen hundred quid for you. And um, yeah, why not? I'm in trouble at the moment. The economy's not doing well. You take fifteen hundred quid for nothing. Yeah. So I think you know, and then it goes up to twenty and more, and and, and in the end they say, actually, I'd like a slice of this. You know, I want to invest my some money in, in in this enterprise myself, and because that is what it is at heart. So much of this is it, it, just business. Yeah. It's just business, and um, 
you know, it's a, it's a great crime. One of my favourite crime films is The Long Good Friday yeah. uh, with Bob Hoskins, and he's got this crazy, I'm a businessman. You know, I'm just a businessman. And um, that's how people talk about it. They really don't see themselves as criminals. And, and, and for some of them, you know, they, they'll just burst into, burst into laughter if you put to them that they're, that they're organised criminals. Yeah. You know, but, but you've just brought in, you know, two million pounds worth of, of, uh, of contraband cigarettes. Yeah, yeah, well, that's everybody smokes. There's no problem with that. You know, what's the I'm just a businessman. And yeah, they're, they're, they're right, really. Yeah, they're right. But again, back to the sociology of obedience to understand that, you know, it's normal activity. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'd like to discuss three of the great myths of organised crime. One, that it's organised. Two, that there's a kingpin. And three, that it's multi-generational in the same family. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was starting with the first one. How organised is the so-called organised crime? Well, it, it's, it's about as organised as, as, as your average university. Yeah, so not. <laughs> not so. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you think of the average university, the, the, aim, of, the aim of the university system is, is teaching and research. But once you start working in the university, you know there's a lot of other stuff going on in there as well. So there's, you know, there's feuds between colleagues. There, there's people using their computers for, for hobbies or to buy online. Um, people go into work and all they're looking forward to is lunchtime when they can go and have a couple of beers or play some five-a-side football or, or meet up with their friends or whatever. So, yeah, you know, all of these, all of these, these structures that we create—work, leisure, whatever—there's other things going on there. There's, a, there's many other things going on, and within any organised so-called organised crime group, there's loads of stuff going on. And, and one of the great um, one of the great strengths of, of, of these crime groups is that, that a lot of the people that work within them are totally disorganised and chaotic. So they can't be surveilled. You know, the police, you know, the police are always saying, well, we want to set up surveillance on this guy, but we never know when he's going to get up in the morning. We're never going to, we never know where he's going to wake up in the morning. We don't know, uh, you know, we don't know what girlfriend he's going to be with. We don't know what state he's going to be in. We've no idea what car he drives anymore because he's got dozens of them all over the city and, and he hires them anyway. So we don't know what goes on. And, and that chaotic lifestyle that, 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 that they've got is a, is a real strength. The other thing is that certain, there's certain aspects of their activity which has to be organised. You know, if you're bringing in, if you're, if you're part of a network which is bringing in um, heroin from uh, Afghanistan, it starts in Afghanistan as opium gets processed in Turkey, brought across the Balkans, Goes to Amsterdam, then over the over the over the sea to to the UK, and then gets distributed. You can't be, you know, there's going to be an element of, of organisation, an element of structure, element of structure in there. But it, it, it's not a it's not a structure per se. You know, it's not a hierarchical structure with, with Marlon Brando at the top, with mouthful of cotton wool, and, and a bunch of psychopaths at the bottom. You know, the psychopaths indeed may be at the top. It, 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 it's a it, it, each one of these groups will vary. It's very, very, it's very, very difficult to stereotype them. So there's a, there's a, there is some organisation, but there's some organisation in everything. You know, there's some organisation. We've had to get together over the last few months to get this Skype interview sorted out. We've had to be, and we I don't know about you, but I'm one of the most disorganised people on, on the planet. But somehow, it's no doubt because of you, you, you we've managed to make this work. So this idea of organisation as being a, as being a kind of coder for some kind of um, 
higher higher activity is a bit of a nonsense. We're, we're organised to an extent, but I think the organised crime uh, label uh, tends to um, tends to overdo it a bit. Tends to overemphasise the, the notion of organisation. Yeah, yep, yep. Uh, which then leads into the question of you know if it's not all that organised, is there even a role for Mr. Big who's running everything? Yeah, there's no Mr. Biggs. I mean, there's no Mr. Biggs. The idea, the idea of a kingpin is really problematic. You can find individuals who are more important than other individuals within an organisation, within a structure, within a, a network. Yeah, that's the case. But I came across a lot of people whose roles within illegal activities changed, changed all the time. You know, they, I, I, I came across people who, were, um, who, could be, who could be importers and they'd do well, they'd make some money. Then they'll go quiet. They make a comeback on the market. They can't get into the market at the import level, so they'll deal on the street. And they'll deal on the street so they've got some money and an opportunity will come up. And then they'll be involved in the middle market, a wholesaling or whatever, you know. So there's, there's a hell of a lot of movement. There's a hell of a lot of movement. But the tendency is with this whole kingpin notion, the tendency is for the police to, to go for kingpins, not because the police are stupid. I think one of the great mistakes that a lot of the villains that I have spoken to over the years is to assume that the police are stupid. The police are not stupid. Um, sometimes I wish they were, but they're not. And, and the, 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 the fact of it is that, that the police will go for the police will will go for the kind of hierarchical model. They'll present uh, criminality in terms of these organised structures because it's good for a case. Putting a case together for court, it's very, you know, it makes sense. It makes absolute sense for them to say, you know, Bill Smith was the main player because he was operating over a five-year period. He's made fifty million pounds. He's the main person. Then under him is Alan Smith, his brother or whatever, and he's not quite as much. He's only made twenty million. But and they put the case, they put the case together like that because it makes sense in court. They know if you talk to them privately. They know they have not cleared up the entire organisation because there is no organisation. It's a group of people who got together for an activity. But in order to present the case in court coherently, they need to present it in those in those very kind of stereotypical forms because the market is chaotic. When a market is chaotic, there's so many people involved at so many different levels, either knowingly or otherwise. If they were going to pick up everyone who's involved in illegal activity. I, I think there'd probably be two, maybe two old ladies living in Wimbledon left behind, yeah, outside <laughs> of the prison system. Everybody's involved. And I think that's one of the points we want to make about it, is everybody's involved in this in some way. If you live in an urban environment, and Britain in particular is a very, very urban environment, and, and everyone's involved. Even if you're not in an urban environment, we recently had a great horse meat scandal. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, where 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 meat was being sold, where beef was was being sold, but it's actually horse meat, and um, you know that brought in not mafias, etc. But that brought in uh, people running, um, working with livestock, people running abattoirs in rural areas as well. So basically, we live in an environment at the moment where we're encouraged to be entrepreneurs. I mean, even in, in, in universities, you know, we're encouraged, we've got targets, we're supposed to get more students in every year, go and get grant income, et cetera, et cetera. We're all entrepreneurs. And um, I don't think, that, again, I think organised crime is really an example of, of modern entrepreneurship as much as anything else. But kingpins? Nah, not really. No. Well, I've got to say, I'm doing research on one of the great big uh, corruption inquiries that happened here in the ni- late 1980s. 
when in the 80s is my teenage years, so I've discovered that um, my local GP was an off-course bookmaker. I didn't go to a single nightclub that was licensed the entire time. I had no idea. They all had flashing lights. So we all participated in the illegal economy at some yeah. stage of our lives. Yeah, and, and as you know, you'd have still gone. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It would have been more fun. Absolutely. More excitement. Give a bit of age to it because we like that as well. Yeah. <laughs> so um, then what about this? It, 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 do we still see multiple generations of families? I mean, the, the classic picture is the Italian family where the grandfather is the godfather and then the sons and every, the grandsons are all players in the game. Yeah, I mean, family, we don't see that to the same extent, but family is important, you know, because a lot of these activities, they run on trust. You know, I've got to be able to trust you, you've got to be able to trust me, and um, and, and family is a good uh, a good, good example of trust. You know, people are more likely to trust their, their, their brothers and their uncles, etc., than they are complete strangers. So being part of a family in that respect is a, is a huge, uh, is a huge um, uh, advantage. Um, one of the, uh, the the gangsters from the sixties who worked with a crazy guy called Tony Lambriano used to say, uh, used to say, without brothers you were nothing. Without brothers you were nothing. And, and certainly in the early in the early days of, the, of some of these guys' careers, it was important because if you were going to have a fight, you went with your brothers. Yes. So so you, they weren't taken on one person; they were taken on a family. So that was quite that was quite important. But later on, when with more entrepreneurial activities, certainly the risk element. Is, is, is kind of uh, dealt with in a way by, by working with people you've known all your life. Yep. So in that respect, it, in that respect, it's important. What, what's interesting though is that now that, that this this illegal economy that we're talking about and illegal trading, illegal capitalism, it, it, is is so wide is so widespread that um, it's very very uh, common for um, the names of, of, of big families. To be used almost as a franchise. Yes. You know, you put someone's name up. Well, you know, I'm with the Smiths. Oh, okay then. And that acts as a, that acts as a trust. Mind you, if the Smiths know about it, you better be paying them for your name. And that happened quite recently. You know, in in, in the UK, with one particular uh, uh, quite well known crime family, that they found out that their name was being used in vain in, in order to in order to. Um, to, to, to make businesses work, to make illegal businesses work. And um, as a result of that, they went to these people and said, you know, it's either a bullet in the head or 10 grand a week. And they got the 10, they got the 10 grand a week. You know, it's like if you want to you know, run a McDonald's, uh, you'd better be paying the franchise fee every week. And so there's an element of that about it. There's an element of that. But I've also, I mean, it's, it's worth saying there's an awful lot of wannabes in this world who will put, who will put names up, you know, who will put names up. Uh, that they're connected to people, and of, and of course they're, they're not. But it's a it's an extremely risky business to do that. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's very similar to a normal business transaction. Then the branding is really important. Yeah, yeah. Branding branding is in, branding is important. It's very it's very important indeed. And uh, but it's not it's not formalised. You know, it's it, it who you're seen with. I mean, boxing matches, uh, mixed martial arts matches. Football matches. Sport, sport is important. Sport is important. So who you seen at, who you seen with at these at these events, that's important. Who you drink with, etc. It's worth saying as well that you, you know uh, um, the, the pub. When I first started off doing research, I, st- I started my PhD in the mid eighties, and um, then the pub was important. 
you know, my mental map of London is still to do with pubs. You know, it's well, I'll meet Harry there, and I'll go here, and I'll go there, and the, the Blackpool, and the Summit Arms, and the Devonshire, and I'll, I'll move around London according to pubs, and people would meet in pubs, and that's what they did. You know, that's what they did. That's faded an awful lot, particularly in London, where um, so many of the old pubs are shut down. We've got a cosmopolitan uh, society in London now, and large chunks of the populace don't drink alcohol, so the pubs were sitting there uh, pretty much empty. Uh, they've been shut down, burnt down, they've accidentally had a fire, as we say. Um, they, they've been turned into kebab places or restaurants or flats have been turned into, into, into residential premises. So the old idea of you could go to a certain pub and, and hang around with, with some quite heavy people, um, that's faded, not completely, but it's faded a lot. It's faded a lot. So, yeah, 20 years ago, if you'd have said, if we'd have been speaking now, I could, you could have said to me, well, where do I go in London? I could have said, well, you go to the, the such and such arms in Hackney, if you go there on a Friday lunchtime, all the jump-up merchants will be there, all the, all the people who are stealing off the lorries, you know, you can go there, you can buy some stuff, or you can talk to people, or just listen, probably just to, to listen, you know, or you can go to this particular pub in, in, uh, in, um, in Bermondsey, and, and there'll be lots of armed robbers in there, and that's where they go. And you can just be there, and the police knew it, and everybody knew it, and it was very much part of the local community scene. That is virtually gone now, you know. It's uh, partly to do with the fact that the pubs are not there, or the pubs have turned into more middle-class environments, or wine bars, or whatever. Um, but it's also to do with the fact that, that the activities that people are involved in are really, really serious now. You know, if you're going to be... You're going to be involved in drugs. You're, you're, you're risking 22 years of your life. Yeah. Now, you're not going to go too much on display in, in the saloon bar of the, of the dog and duck. You know, you're, you're going to be a little bit more mysterious. You're going to be, remove yourself slightly. So this kind of, what I call the community of practice, where everyone is involved, that kind of community of practice is a, is a difficult one to pin down. And you need to be in the field for an awful long time to actually grab hold of it. You can't just bash in, do a bit of research and come out again. And from journalists' point of view as well, I mean, journalists were notorious. They would, some of the old crime correspondents, if you like, would go into a pub and they'd be drinking with detectives and they'd be drinking with armed robbers and they would go away and they would write their story and they'd made in, they'd, they'd make livings that way. But that's gone. That, that, that old underworld, if you like, the old underworld, particularly in London, is, is gone. It's not an underworld any, any, anymore. It's a kind of... It's, it's, it's an overworld, a, a community of practice where everyone can be engaged with, but it's hard to pin down. Yeah. Is there also the world changed where you mentioned how people like the fame of being associated with the craze. People would be, you know, these famous crooks, I'm going to be hanging around with them as well. Has that had to disappear as well as a result of the same change? Yeah, it has had to disappear, really. I mean, the example there was the Cray, with the Cray Twins, and, and, you know, one of the... the the kind of iconic moments, if you like, the Cray Twins' career was when uh, Ronnie Cray went into the Blind Beggar pub uh, in, in, in Whitechapel and, and uh, took out a Luger and, and, and shot Jack the Hatman Vitti in the head. Everyone knows this story. Everyone knows this story. And it's, you know, it's a small Victorian pub. The Blind Beggar's still there. Um, and I must have met about you know, 2,000 people who were in the pub that night. <laughs> but it was... You could almost fill a football stadium, really, the amount of people that were there. And so people like to be rubbed, you know, they, they like that. The interesting thing is that, that a lot of the old villains, those who are still around, realise that. They realise the fame they've got. And for an awful long time, at the, just about the same time that the, 
but the state started to invent organised crime. Um, a lot of the old women started to make a comeback in the media. There was, a, there was a sudden interest in the early 90s. We had a series on the BBC called The Underworld. Yep. Uh, it was a six-part series, and uh, I was involved as, as a consultant on that, and I saw, the, I saw it grow. And a lot of the people that I knew about, either through my, my former, former life or, or through, uh, through reading, um, uh, suddenly became uh, national figures. Uh, people like Frankie Fraser, Mad Frankie Fraser, you know. Um, he, he, was, he was part of the underworld. A few people knew about it, but not many. Suddenly he was on our screen. Um, the the uh, Freddie Fulman, Tony Lambriano, all these guys had served massive prison sentences. Some had made money, some hadn't made money. But suddenly they became uh, real icons of a, of a golden age in the 1960s. And, and it was also... Uh, uh, coincided with um with the growth of these um the uh, the kind of uh, uh, boys comics almost men's magazines the new breed of men's magazines like like nuts and FHM and all of those things and they they adored these old boys these gnarled old gangsters and they dressed them up in several row suits and they they gave them they gave them columns to write about style and <laughs> and, and one there was I think it was Jeez and Hawks or some some uh, Savile Row tailors actually hired Tony Lambriano and Freddie Fulman uh, to model for them, to model. And these, these guys were then in their 50s or 60s, uh, and, uh, and they were suddenly modelling for Savile Row. So that kind, that kind of thing took off, really did take off in the 90s. Frankie Fraser, you know, he, ended, he, was, uh, he was doing coach tours of, uh, of, of London, showing people around. They were doing stand-up shows in, in, in theatres and doing tours, like, you know, real celebrities. And it kind of went a bit too far. It kind of went a bit too far. I mean, I, I interviewed Frankie Fraser a few times, and um, Frank used to used to say, "Oh yeah, well, I, I was the I was the torturer on the Richardson's case, and I had um, gold gold plated um, gold plated pliers. That I ripped people's teeth out. Mm-hmm. Ho ho ho! Isn't that funny? Well, no, it's not. And you didn't anyway, because part of your part of your defence in that case was that you didn't actually torture people, and I don't think you did to any great extent." But he knows what people want to hear. It's a bit like Keith Richards, you know, a bit yeah. like Richards of the Stones, you know. He knows that everybody needs a villain to identify with and to play out their fantasies for them because we're all locked away in offices in our safe little worlds and we want these, these, these sort of bandits to be out there and playing out our fantasies on our behalf. And a lot of these old underworld characters have, have done that and made some money. I mean, when I first started off, true crime, the true true crime um, uh, bookshelves in, in the local bookshelf. There might be about two American books in there and a great book by John Pearson uh, about the Cray Twins, the, the professional pilots. And that was it. Suddenly, you know, true crime is everywhere. It's same here in Australia, you know. Oh, yeah. Shelf after shelf. Most of it is utter dross, you know. It's awful. It's awful. But it, it fulfills people's fantasies. The other side of that fantasy, if I just say something about that, is that uh, in the UK, we've tended to, when we make films about uh, real-life villains, we've tended to uh, choose pop stars to play the villains. Yeah. Which is bizarre. So Roger Daltrey Bol- Roger played John McVicker in the, yeah. in, in the film. We had the two twins from the dreadful Spandau Ballet playing the Cray Twins. And most bizarrely, we had Luke Goss from Bross play, play Charlie Richardson in the biopic of him. So we, we tend to do this stuff. and. It's about celebrity. It's become about celebrity rather than the, 
the nitty gritty and quite boring and bland reality. Yep. Well, look, we've done uh, quite a long conversation now. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but what I'd really like to wrap it up is, um, can you make suggestions then for people who want to study organized crime under that title? What should they be doing? How should they be carrying it out? What data should they be looking for? Because I certainly have a lot of students who come along and say, I want to do it, I don't know what to do. So what are your recommendations? Well, I think um, within the city, engage with the city, talk to people in the city. I think it takes certain social skills. I I feel quite strongly that the majority of academics that I know, with due respect to them, haven't got the social skills to do this kind of work. You know, you need to be able to talk to people. You need to... Enjoy talking, and, and most importantly, enjoy listening, and to find out what's going on. You know, lots of people use drugs. Lots of people use illegal DVD. Lots of people use illegal all kinds of stuff. You know, it's part of city life. If you accept it not as a criminological um, enterprise, but if you see it as being a yeah, part of the sociology of building, it's part of the way that ordinary people live. You can get a foothold in all kinds of illegal illegal activity, albeit banned, albeit normalised, and and probably non non uh, non violent and non dangerous, just by talking to people. You know what is the what's the difference, for instance, between different generations, the different generational attitudes to this kind of illegal activity. You know, a lot of older people, in my experience, will say, "Oh, I'm against all this gangsterism and all these drugs. It's terrible." We spend some time with them and talk about what went on in their day, and it was probably worse. Mm. You know, it's probably worse. So what is it about the term organised crime that triggers these fears amongst people? So I'd say basically just talk to people. The other people worth talking to, not surprisingly, are police officers. Not because they're the front of all knowledge, they're not. But it's really interesting. This idea of the construction of problems and the construction of threat is interesting because police officers criticise it themselves. Now, privately, in the pub, after work, they will say, well, I don't know why we're chasing these Lebanese. I don't know why we're chasing these Chinese, you know. All they're doing is making a living. And if we do what we did with the Italians and just leave them alone for a generation, they'll settle, assimilate, and there's no problem at all. So, yeah, we need, we need to hear a little bit more. We need to hear a little bit of that. So I, I would say, you know, just, just use your eyes and ears, engage with urban life, talk to people. And just find out what's going on. You might end up with a project where you've got nothing to do with organised crime at all. But if you start off with that, if you start off that with, as, as, as a starter, then away you go. And just see it as something normal. It's not exceptional. Okay, well, Dick Hobbs, <laughs> thank you very, very much for your time. Thanks, Mark. I really enjoyed chatting to you. Thanks very much. 